Peter was naughty, Doc. What did Peter do? He shouldn't have done it, Doc. Tell me, Simon. He scared Mary, Doc. scares us and what saves us. This is the fear of God. Hello and welcome back to your favorite podcast at the intersection of faith and fear, where every week and especially this year, and especially this episode, we discuss what scares us in order to find what saves us. This is the fear of God. Speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse, and typically with me is fellow co-host Reed Lackey. And guys, he was here, uh, guys and gals, uh, he was here a minute ago, but he said he needed to go clean up his snack of peanut butter and Oreos, which is just not healthy. Uh, but I'm, I can't talk. I I do love some peanut butter, so I'm not going to blame the guy for indulging there. In the meantime, allow me to welcome not just you constant listener, but a very special guest back to the show. Friends and foggers, the man with his own HBO series inspired by his work. It's Matt Ruff. Matt, (laughs) welcome back. Well, thank you for having me back. Oh, absolutely. It's a thrill. Thank you for joining us in the middle and as part of this series called What Scares Us, a special series curated by the listeners focusing on films and media that stirred a fearful imagining in them and Mr. Ruff in you, because today we are featuring your submission for What Scares Us, which is super exciting. Hopefully Reed will be here in a minute, as I know he'll be happy to see you. Um, As I am wont to do on the show, though, I'm getting ahead of myself, because here at The Fear of God, we explore. We don't explain, except for right now, when I explain that you, listener, when I explain that you, Matt, can listen to The Fear of God at your nearest podcast platform. <laughs> you can watch The Fear of God on YouTube. 
It's consistent now. I promise it's there. And you can browse the fear of God on the web at the fear of God podcast.com where you will find read, read. Hey, buddy. <laughs> Welcome Hi. back to your own show. I, I'm amazed to be here. I'm, I'm even more amazed that Matt is here. Look, Matt. Oh my God. Our friend Matt. It's, it's so good to <laughs> See friend, of the, friend of the fog, Matt Ruff. Oh man, thank you so Good much for you guys. coming back. No, no, yeah. thanks for inviting me back. It's 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 uh, wonderful. Awesome, I, awesome. I, I felt like we should have preempted Matt for like just disappointment. Now, like you know, <laughs> not, previously he was like the star. You know, we, we were starstruck. Now it's, you're just one of us that we're gonna burp and fart in front. <laughs> no, of No, it's and all actually that kind of stuff. true. I feel like part of the part of the family now. Yeah, that's well, good. awesome. Good, because yeah, we want the, it. The the fog and family. Absolutely. Um, so we've, we want to indulge a conversation with you, Matt, but Reed, before we do that, is there any specific business we need to tend to? Uh, nothing beyond the usual. In fact, though, I do want to say um, if there's any who are still debating about whether or not to submit their What Scares Us entry, uh, that time is growing short if it has not already eclipsed. In fact, next week's episode was a, was a bit of a rapid-fire late entry, so by all means, visit fearofgodpodcast.com. Click on the banner on the top. You can submit your story for our ongoing series, which this episode is a part of, for hashtag what scares us. Other than that, come hang out with us. Join us in the Facebook group. Uh, write us a review on iTunes. Like all the and who stuff. knows? Like some some folks of late, maybe you'll end up on the show. Um, <laughs> yes, not a leave promise, an but iTunes, maybe you know. <laughs> leave an iTunes review, Matt. Leave- <laughs> And <laughs> review. Super subtle. Super Listeners subtle. can't see that I was making really big winky eyes at Matt. Um, <laughs> I, I, okay. think, I think they actually might be able to see that, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. Just listeners. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It was that big. Good. Good joke, Matt. I almost missed it, but uh, I, uh, I did. I did pick it up there. So. Matt, typically, as you may know, if you've listened to the show much, um, we we will often do a whatcha watching uh, what you're reading, what you're listening to. Um, but being that you're here and last time you were here predated the release of the HBO adaptation of your book, I thought it'd be fun to just do uh, a little mini convo about your experience with that. So one, just as a general kind of uh, a launch pad for you, how are you? Congratulations. You had your work adapted for the old home box office. And what was that like? It, it has been the weirdest year <laughs> of my life because it's, yeah. yeah, it's been this thing where, yes, we're in the middle. First of all, there's the pandemic. There's the, the all, yeah. all the, all the joy of the election season. Um, sure. Oh man. <laughs> you know, the question about whether there'd be a country left after January and uh, yeah, but then God, at the same right. time, this has been the, the best year of my life professionally where um, mm. it's like the best of time and the worst of times even the pandemic sort of eating the launch for my most recent novel uh didn't really matter because um well partly because you know our our good friend blake collier was there to help me out we did a podcast so i was actually ready to go online when everybody else Mm. was still scrambling to figure out how to do that but um but then yeah the hbo series came out and it, it turns out having hbo do a a an adaptation of one of your novels is like the best advertising campaign that you know <laughs> someone else's money can buy i'm sure <laughs> that's so um, awesome that's so fantastic. yeah and it was just a it was just a you know the big question everybody asks is what is it like to see your work adapted and and you know how do you feel about things being different because of course inevitably there's going to be changes made and mm-hmm. 
I was always of the, like you guys, I'm, I'm an old time Stephen King fan. And so quoting mm. James M. Cain by way of Stephen King, you know, they can't ruin my novel. It's up there on the shelf and always will be. Right. And, sure. Right. It's easy to say that, but until it actually happens, you don't really know how you're going to feel or how territorial you're going to be. And I was yeah. very pleased to discover watching the show when it finally came out. Um, and obviously it helped that I think they did an amazing job at the adaptation. But sure. more than that, I, I just I was really willing to just go with it the way, you know, and and accept that it, you know, it was a different it was a, it was an, a translation not a yeah. a carbon yeah. copy of what I did and it wasn't, you know, and right. I, I would have been bored if it had been too close to what I did anyway. So I was mm. fine with the, you know, the character changes. They gender flipped a couple of the characters and and they obviously made some big plot digressions particularly in the latter half of the series, but um, yeah. right, right. Uh and all of it basically worked for me. There were, I mean, there were a couple of points where I had to watch an episode twice, like the first time to sort of like see what happened because it would be like, wait a minute, <laughs> you did what? <laughs> yeah. You, you killed him? You Really? Right, right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> now, um, out of curiosity, did, and, and you know, the, it's all out there, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen, read, uh, seen the series or read the book, but were you privy to any of those changes going in? Like, did you know definitively I, I knew, X, Y, and Z? I knew that uh, Caleb Braithwaite was going to become Christina Braithwaite. And sure. I knew that uh, Horace from the novel was going to become D in the series. So I knew mm. about the, the gender changes. And I guessed about the secret of Christina and William being the same character. Yeah. It's funny. I yeah. read the pilot script. They didn't tell me in advance, but somehow I just knew Interesting. Well, if Christina's a woman, then maybe Christina is also going to turn out to be William. And it's just, it, it was just weird Look that that happened you. to be the, the case. But, um, but the, I didn't, you know, I, 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 other than reading one draft of the pilot script, I didn't see anything before they started releasing the previews. Um, I did get, I did get a, a, a look at the screening of the, like the first five episodes that they sent out to all the reviewers, but at the same time the reviewers did. And then the the rest of the season I saw the same time everyone else did. So yeah, it was a really interesting experience, especially as things diverged more towards the end. And I mean, the real, Turning point was the episode six. Um, the, is that the Korea one? The Korea one, which is the only one that is does no parallel in the novel. Um, but what was funny about that was that I had always thought if I was going to do more with this, at some point I would want to go back and tell the story of Atticus and Korea. And my Very take cool. would have been a like the idea I had was a more of a predator type thing of you know this adventure that that Atticus and a bunch of his fellow soldiers were sent on where they were sent you know behind enemy lines and got caught in a kind of a predator situation having to do with war crimes but still covering in some ways similar to what they were going into in that episode and so that was sort mm-hmm. of weird to see well now that they've done that I probably can't go back and do that but that's okay I really I really love that episode and I loved I loved the fact that one of the things the show was never afraid to do was sort of throw something at you like you don't see any of the characters you've already met in that episode until like 20 minutes into the yeah. the, the episode yeah. and you're like you're like what is this and I'm like I'm just laughing saying this is great this is going to piss some people off but I think this is wonderful yeah. <laughs> well, in, <laughs> in general the casting was superb yeah. but I've got a funny I've got a funny story for you there so my wife who in a general sense doesn't really indulge much of the horror stuff, but I had just read the book. We had just had you on the show. I was able to coerce her. I was like, let's just check this out. And because I'd read the book, I had a general knowledge of what we'd see. Well, <laughs> then you get to the Korea episode, which is not only not at all in the book, but also features a 
sex demon monster thing <laughs> that is pretty graphic in the episode. And I remember sitting there being like, Ooh, this is new material. Yep. I'm sorry. <laughs> Hang on, honey. I'm just, yeah, I, yeah, always, yeah. I don't know what's coming. <laughs> I, I didn't know that was about to happen. I have to say, I would probably not have gone there myself. Um, it probably yeah. wouldn't mm-hmm. have been received the same way coming from me anyhow, but yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> right. Sure. Um, um, well, in the spirit of, of some of the changes, I, I, I am curious and I want you to say, generally speaking, whatever else you want to about your experience of this moment, but you know, for those who read the book and then watched the series, there are, as you highlighted, some clear deviations. What would you say? We'll start with the quote unquote negative. Were there any that you're like, huh, I really like the way I did it? Were there ones that you would have said that left kind of a sour taste in my mouth for, for no, the change? No, I mean, I, and again, I mean, it, I think I think the attitude I went into it was that Misha's going to have her own interpretation of this. So I, I very much felt like, I, I, again, it, it was weird. I didn't feel like, um, at this point, it's not my story. It's it's Misha telling a version of the story I told. So it's like we're almost yeah, working right, off right. similar source material. So I, at no point, there are decisions I wouldn't have made. The story, as I would have told it, is the one I actually told. So yeah, yeah. Right. there's right. a sense in which everything that was done differently in the series is stuff that either didn't occur to me or if it had, it would have been, no, that's not my version of this. Right. Sure. But that's right. different that's from saying it's wrong. And I think that's that's one of the things I, I'm really happy about the way and the way I know Misha has talked about it is that there really isn't a sense of like some reviewers, it's different. Reviewers do tend to take sides and say, well, I like this better or I like this version better. Hmm. But my sense is like what part of what I liked is that that it's it's a it's a conceit and a concept that can be done in multiple different ways. And it's not exhausted even now. You could you could have a third party come in and tell their version of this and and have it you know yeah. make different choices and have them work too so i was really mostly trying to judge it on its own terms for the most part and i think it generally worked on its own terms there were a few points where i felt the pacing was so fast it was easy to miss things and mm-hmm. but uh nothing where i felt like yeah you know uh I, you know what i, I what i, I really know. appreciate about your response matt is that you didn't just come out and say nathan that's a really grossly reductive way to ask that question so i appreciate that <laughs> Um, but <laughs> no, 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 that's I'm kidding because I'm going to pivot into, into really good too. So I, I'll speak for myself as, as being a reader and then a watcher of, you know, pivoting into, are there any changes that you were really, that kind of put wind in your sails of, of what they did. I, because one, I found it one of my more enjoyable moments in the book is the Horace chapter. Uh, the D analog of that was fantastic on screen with the, the dancing girls. Mm-hmm. You remember oh, yeah. this? Uh, f- yeah. I mean, that was a really strong I'm blanking on their names. I, I think it's Flopsy and Topsy or something like that from, something from like Uncle that. Tom's yeah. Cabin. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. That was, a, that was definitely a, a, and it was a nice, again, it was nice. It was like same basic idea, but just creepy yeah. in a different way. And, yes. um, I mean, I think the, the thing that got me the most was probably just watching the pilot and, that is a perfect example of, and, and there was the thing that, that like, I, I was not a part of the production and, you know, Misha was very open to, you know, feel free to you know give me any thoughts you have and stuff like that. But it was just like, it, there was a point early on where I recognized that I don't really have the vocabulary. I have no experience working in a visual medium. And so I'm going to, you know, she doesn't need me leaning over her shoulder, giving her ideas. I just, I'll yep. give her my notes on what I was thinking and, you know, remain on call if she wants to bounce anything off me. But, and definitely the, 
watching the pilot and just seeing how uh, I, I got envious at certain points at the ability with a single image to convey what would take paragraphs mm-hmm. of exposition. So right, right. like in the novel, he, you know, he drives home alone in a car in, in the series, she puts him on a bus. And of course the reason she does that one is then he has people to talk to. Yeah. So you can do what I can do with just internal monologue. And um, again, they just, you know, that one tracking shot of the beginning where they're coming down the bus and you see the, you know, the back of the bus reserved for members of the colored race. It just tells you yeah. right away yeah. where you are and, and it conveys in, in a very visual way, very quickly what you need to know without, you know, having to resort to forced voiceover. And I, I, th- I thought that was like, wow, this is great. And this is something I wouldn't have known how to do. So it was, it was just neat to see things like that. And then, yeah, where, a lot of the best bits are there, but they're either moved around or they happen, you know, or they happen in a slightly different way. And, and so right. I thought that was really effective as well. Uh, so it's a great, the pilot in particular just like really blew me away. Um, well, and I think one thing that probably happened to a lot of viewers is that, um, like, I know this happened to me. So obviously we read your book and had the conversation about it on the show. Then after seeing the series, there were a couple that I wanted to go back and reread those stories. It like it was this kind of dialogue of the medium having the story. Mm-hmm. The the stories were propelling imaginative interplay with each other, and I, I really enjoyed that. I, I just love the way that you've expressed your experience of 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 going through it. This is going to seem like a random non sequitur, but my son has been reading a lot of Calvin and Hobbes uh, recently. Uh, just he discovered it almost on his own. But I remember something Bill Watterson always used to say about Hobbes when they said like, "Well, is it?" Is it that he's a character a la Toy Story who, you know, sort of uh, falls apart whenever adults are in the room? Or is he, you know, like, is he pretending? Or what's really going on with Hobbes? And Watterson was always like, well, Calvin sees him one way and the rest of the world sees him another way. And uh, so in thinking about this idea of like, this is this is Misha's vision of these yeah. same kind of stories. And this is, you know, your vision of these same kind of stories. And I love the way that in many ways they can kind of complement each other rather than compete with one another in how they sit within our own imaginations exploring the same ideas. I think that's really, uh, it, it's like the, the work stacks upon itself in very, um, you know, yeah. propulsive ways. I like that. And I, I mean, that was, you know, the only times I, I would ever get frustrated really were there were reviewers or people reacting to the show who just couldn't seem to get that and always felt like it had to be, you know, there's one way that's better to do this or I didn't like this in the series. You know, it really should have been done the way it was in the book. And it was like, right, right. Like I say, you know, there were times watching the show where they did stuff that was different enough that I had to watch it once just to see what happened and then go back and then I could engage on my own terms. Get pet past the part like, really? You made that decision there? It's like, huh. Right, right. And and not not in a way like oh that's terrible but it's just like wow it would not have occurred to me to do that and mm-hmm. you know I you know but then let me let me rewatch this the way you want me to see it and I get it and yeah yeah that's um, great you know and again, what a wi- what a wild sort of sensation that must be to be the architect and author of the version and then absorb the other version and kind of. But part of what I love yeah. about this too, is that it, they sort of actually, and I, I don't know if, you know, how much this was a re- reaction to the way I was reacting to Misha's initial ideas, but they did sort of build in this idea of, yeah, it's a parallel universe is where there's a point where Atticus yes. goes through time and comes back with a version of what sounds very much like my version yeah. of the story, even though it's yeah. not written by Matt Ruff, it's written by Atticus's unborn child. So, 
But even so, is this sort of like the, a nod to saying, yeah, there's other ways to tell the story too. And, and we recognize that it's as very well. very dark I, tower. Yeah. So I, I love that. Um, and, you know, I'm still, I'm still very much thinking about writing uh, additional novels about this. So, mm. it, and it's mm. kind of nice that they've sort of set the, the stage for that, where if I do, we've already got this built-in idea that it's okay. I'm going to go into very different places than where it looks like the series is going. Um, yeah. Because and I... I, I still want to. I, I still have a lot of stuff I want to say about you know characters who are no longer living in the Misha's sure. version of Lovecraft Country right. universe. So right. in in a way, it's kind of cool that yeah, she killed off a couple of the people who I really wanted to do a lot more <laughs> with. So that completely eliminates the issue of you know any sort of rights issue of like oh Matt's taking ideas that were work product of HBO. It's like nope, I've I've got ideas that clearly will not be because those guys aren't even going to be in your your future version. So it's it's kind of well, a nice yeah. What's what's funny about that? This is completely random, but um, I I can remember, and the sequencing of this is not terribly important. But I can remember, I read uh, so the very first time I saw Jurassic Park, the film, that was my first experience of that story. But then I went back and read Michael Crichton's novel, and uh, this is not a major spoiler, uh, but different people. To your point, Matt, different people die in his novel than yeah. die in the film. Most specifically. Ian Malcolm dies in the novel, or at least while it's not explicitly stated that Ian Malcolm is dead, towards the end of it, the characters are talking about like which of us made it or whatever, and Ian Malcolm, they shake their head like, no, Ian Malcolm didn't make it. I thought it was pretty and, explicit that he died, but then then Crichton retroed that later. Right! <laughs> then, I had so no I was question like, that he was dead, but then I was like, oh, he, he shows up again? Wait, what? Right, and then like The Lost World, his follow-up novel, it like... Almost is all centered around him, so I'm like, wait That's a minute, what did, you know, what what did you just do here? So I mean, when you've got Goldblum, well, know. and that was my point is like, you know, maybe hey, who knows? I mean, people people live, they die, you know, and, and it's an imaginative fantasy world. Bring them back if you want, you know, like in the series, they can, you know, they they can basically find some machination that will, you know, introduce them back in. Who knows? And that that's the beauty of the fantasy world that you've kind of created is this ability. That, that really the rules are kind of what we make them to be and what sure. we establish them to be in your in universe. So, uh, so yeah, that's kind of cool. Well, before we deviate too far from that, Matt, you, you referenced, uh, uh, other friend of the fog, Blake Collier, um, uh, speak a little bit. What, what do you have going on right now? You know, if someone, if someone didn't listen to our conversation with you back in the day, uh, what's something they can c- pick up right now that you would encourage us to, so, to look at? Um, my most recent novel, which is, of course, it's reversed, but yeah, it's it's uh, eighty eight names, um, which is a a more science fictional. It's set about twenty years in the future, and the protagonist John Chu is what is known as a Sherpa, which is basically a a paid guide to online role playing games. So if you want to play World of Warcraft, but you know the futuristic version of that, but you don't want to spend hundreds of hours learning how to play and building up a character, you can just pay him, and he will provide you with a ready made character and a team of skilled players to basically cater a night's adventure for you in virtual reality. And hmm. he gets a new client who calls himself Mr. Jones and claims to be a wealthy, famous individual with powerful enemies. And he's offering basically $100,000 a week for a, a comprehensive tour of the world of VR gaming. And so it's one of those deals that sounds too good to be true, but the money's real. So he takes the gig, but he begins to suspect that Mr. Jones is actually Kim Jong-un, the North Korean dictator who's like exploring VR for reasons that have nothing to do with entertainment that have more to do with power. So, and one of the conceits of the novel is that the first two thirds of the story are set entirely online in virtual reality. So everybody has total control over how they look and sound. 
it's a point where machine translation is good enough that you can fake fluency in a language you've never studied. So basically you, all the cues you would normally use to figure out what to think about somebody are, are skewed. They're going through this computer mediation. And so the question is how well can you, you know people if, if you can't trust what you see and hear? And mm -hmm. John Chu, because he's a businessman, is actually quite good at he needs to know what people are thinking. And so he's, he's actually very good at profiling people. At least he fancies himself a good profiler. So it is this, this interesting cat and mouse game. And it's, it's a, it's, it's an adventure in a world where you, everybody is a shapeshifter and everybody is playing a masquerade game. And, um, so, and it's also because he's got an angry ex-girlfriend sort of somewhere in the background. It's also the closest thing I've ever come to writing a, a romantic comedy. My wife has been telling me for years <laughs> I should write a romantic <laughs> comedy and, this is definitely not what she had in mind, um, but um, <laughs> but I would argue that it also qualifies. So it's um, yeah, it's quite it's lighter than Lovecraft Country for sure, but it's still got some interesting things to say about identity and the way people, the mischief people get up to when they think their actions can never be you know assigned to their 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 identity. Um, sure. And uh, oh, so yeah, and so Blake and I, you know, have been doing. We we did a a podcast that uh, where we talked to various people in the in the VR uh, world uh, about everything from you know the morality and ethics of VR to the uh, technology and, and other things like that. And and we revived it for the the, the paperback just came out. So we did a quite a small mm. revival of the podcast. And that's that's what I've been up to lately. That's awesome. No, that's, that's still, that's absolutely still not doing numbers like Lovecraft country, but you know, <laughs> one step at a time. Matt. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. Give it, if give you it give time. a rough a cookie. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, with, without further ado, um, we'd like to get into like one of the things that I, I was really excited about myself. And I know Nathan was as well. Um, obviously we love and love having you on, to talk about your own work, do that ad infinitum. But what was really cool was um, sort of pitching like, hey, we're in this series, what scares us? And sort of propping up, this is what the concept behind that is. And you had thrown out, as the listeners will see on the episode title, the film by Brad Anderson, Session 9, yeah. uh, which is a film that I had seen prior to this. I think this was Nathan's first time seeing it. Nathan, you can, yep. you know, in, in a second, you can chime in. Uh, but I'm curious, just sort of as a launch pad into this, um, obviously this is a series about kind of what gets under our skin, um, some things that kind of unsettle us a little bit. But uh, I'm curious why when we were kind of conversing by email about like, hey, you know, what what would you be interested in covering? What about Session 9 stood out to you? I'd like to know a bit of your history of the film and, and kind of what prompted you to say, hey, let's let's talk about this on the show. So the film came out of 2001, um, which was, mm -hmm. with that time, I was finishing up a book called Set This House in Order, which is a, a, a basically a story about two people with multiple personality disorder who develop mm -hmm. a relationship with each other. One of them is a self-aware multiple who's built a, an imaginary house in his head where is different people can all see and talk to one another. And it's, it's actually a system that uh, apparently some real world multiples have used to sort mm. of stabilize themselves and, and, and basically make, bring stability and, and are able to get along in the world. And he mm. meets a woman named, uh, my protagonist, Andy Gage meets a woman named uh, Penny Driver, who is also multiple, but hasn't quite figured it out yet. And then one of her mm. more self-aware alters gets after him to try oh. and help her build a house of his own, her own. And that ends up destabilizing him and leads to further plot complications. But anyway, I, I was, I, I just finished that up and, and the first draft of that. And, but I was still sort of interested in other takes on, 
NPD. And there is a, a subplot involving multiple personality disorder within session nine, which I think is probably what initially drew me to it. Plus it's just got mm. a really creepy poster. Um, it really does. And then, yeah. but, but what ultimately got me about it, like, well, first of all, it's total mat bait because it's, it's about this uh, asbestos abatement crew who are hired to <laughs> go into Danvers state mental institution, which is a real, was a real building. I mean, it's yeah. actually a whole complex that um, was built in the 1870s, I think, and was, uh, it's been abandoned. It was abandoned in the 80, 1980s. And then, you know, by the time mm. these guys arrived, it, it water damaged, the place was falling down and the filming was perilous they had to restrict mm-hmm. themselves to a very small portion of the building but anyway it's just this amazing setting and you've got these these working class guys working a very dangerous and high stress job in an isolated creepy location and um you know it's very very strong characters um and so it's about their being threatened from without and within and mm-hmm. Very much a film more about, and Brad Anderson talks about this on the, the director's commentary, very more, more about dread than shock. There are very few real jump scares. It's all about we're in this creepy, oppressive place and right. bad things are going to happen here. And mm. I do want to give out a quick spoiler warning. If anyone has not seen this, I think it's a really good yep. movie and I think it's really worth seeing. So if you haven't and you have any intention of seeing it, at this point, I would step away from the podcast and yeah. come back later yeah. because... Ultimately, the, the thing the movie is really about, um, we, as we find out, Gordon, who is the guy who runs the uh, asbestos abatement business, he, in a fit of rage, murders his wife and infant mm. daughter. And then mm. in horror at what he has done, represses that and replaces it with a different memory that, you know, no, I didn't kill my wife and I certainly would never raise a hand to my child. I hit my wife, which is still yeah. really bad. Shouldn't have done it. But, you know, but she's okay and right. the kid's okay. Yeah. And, um, but she's mad at me <laughs> mm-hmm. and I can't go home until she forgives me. And if I drive past my house and I notice that the shades are all down and the lights are all out and it looks like there's nobody alive in there. Well, that's just my wife letting me know that she's still mad and I still can't come home and I mustn't go in the house until she mm-hmm. says it's okay. And gosh, I hope that's soon. And, of course, and he's dealing with this throughout the whole film and like having having basically right. protected himself temporarily from the knowledge of what he's done, he then goes to work yeah. in total denial. Mm. And but it's eating away at him and it, it's sort of that plus the this setting um, slowly builds up and uh, tips him further and further into paranoia and madness and leads ultimately to this massacre in the final act of the movie. And yeah. Um, this just to me touches on a personal horror that I have of because I like a lot of artists, I am a somewhat obsessive personality and I, you know, it's very useful when you're writing and it, you know, it allows you to keep very detail oriented and keep a lot of stuff in perspective, but it can turn around and really bite you if mm. you know, where you can get obsessed over complete trivia. And this is something else on the DVD commentary where Brad Anderson is talking about it. There's a couple of points where I can just, he talks about little things that weren't perfect, like scenes where, ah, eh, the shot wasn't what we hoped, or, you know, the continuity is a little off here. And it's like, I, I totally know what he's feeling when he's doing that. It's like, yeah, mm. it's, it's 95%. It's not perfect. Right. And right. To anybody who wasn't involved in the making of the film, anyone who's not you, it's like, if the film's working for you, you don't care. It's like, it's not perfect, mm. but nothing is. But right. for him, it's just like, ugh, I gotta, I can't, this, that, mm. that thing's two mm-hmm. centimeters off and 
And if you feel that way about, you know, stuff that really doesn't matter, then there's this terror of what your brain would do if it had something serious to worry about, like some horrible thing that you had done. And one of the scariest stories I ever heard, I was in college, uh, one of my professors, Bob Farrell, told the story about he'd been stranded overnight, either in a bus station or an airport, but, you know, weather socked them in. And he struck up a conversation with another stranded traveler. And this guy told Bob, basically, in, in the course of the conversation, that he, he and his wife had had an infant child. I, I don't remember if it was a son or a daughter. But one night, the kid spikes a fever. And his wife really wanted to take the kid to the emergency room. And he was like, ah, no, nah, it's just a high, you know, it's, the kid's just got a temperature. Let him sleep it off. And Oh, wow. And the kid died, basically, in oh, the night. Oh, Lord of mercy. And the kicker was this was not a young this was not something that had just happened. This was an older man and he was referring wow. to an incident that had occurred decades previously. Like wow. uh, and yet, you know, it like it, it could have been 30 years before this, but it was still so present in his mind this one mm. mistake he had made as a father, this one failure that in a conversation with a total stranger he found a way to bring it up to wow. confess it. Yeah, jeez. And that to me is just, you know, and then you, you take that and you imagine, what if it's not a sin of omission? What if it's like, no, I, I just got mad one night and right. took it out. Yeah, yeah. right. Mm. That to me is the, just the definition of what hell Woo. would be like. And yeah. just one more thing about this, bef- just because it, it really does fit into why this this made such a big impression on me. Um, there's a there's a journalist I follow on Twitter named Elizabeth Brunig. Um, she's great mm. for the Washington Post, I think also for the New York Times. She's Catholic, um, pro-life, but consistently so. So she's, she thinks abortion is wrong, but she's also opposed to, you know, capital punishment. And mm, she believes okay. in a very strong, well, social welfare state. So it's like, I'm my brother's keeper after he's born, not just before. And, right, mm-hmm. right, right. And she's, you know, she's, she's written recently about, you know, she attended an execution and how she felt about that. And, uh, mm. you can sort of guess what some of the reaction that was. And one of the things she, she mentioned was just that one of the problems we have in society right now is that there really is no model for forgiveness and absolution and what that should look mm. like. And, Part of the problem, and this is the thing that really stuck with me, is that, you know, she says is that that when most people talk about forgiveness, what they're actually referring to is exoneration. Mm. That, that the way you deal with someone's sin is by deciding it wasn't that bad, or if it yeah. was that bad, yeah. if you can't deny it, then there's some extenuating circumstance where it was, yeah, it was bad, but they had a reason. And, mm. and the problem is that you can't exonerate everybody and you shouldn't try, but even if you do, you're still going to be left with human beings who do genuinely, you know, un- you know, undeniably awful things and they do need right. to be held to account, right. but, but having been held to account, then what? Mm. And if you don't mm. have an answer to that question and a lot of people don't, then you have a problem. And what session nine does for me, it's like the perfect, it's a really good demonstration of how sin without the possibility of forgiveness leads to madness because it's like, yeah. if I, I, wow. There's this thing I've done and I cannot live with the knowledge of it. So my two options are one, stop living, kill myself, or two, mm. deny reality and commit whatever additional sins are necessary to maintain that state of ignorance. And wow. which is what happens with Gordon in the movie. Right. And, yeah. and I, I just, I find it incredibly moving and powerful in that way it's not a happy story at all it's like this is the this is the worst case scenario but it it just really got to me and 
a, a lot of Hollywood movies have a heart. This is they just don't handle moral questions like this very well. They go for facile, right. easy answers. And I've I would contrast it with like a movie I, I do I did like in a lot of ways the, the original version of Flatliners, which is about medical mm. students who want to find out what life after death is like. So they right right. They kill themselves briefly and then resuscitate themselves. And what happens in the movie is you, if you die, you bring your sins back with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the resolution there is very much the exoneration model. It felt to me watching right. it, even the one guy who had actually killed somebody, it was like, well, yeah, you kill somebody, but you just feel bad about it long enough. And then it, it gets better. It's okay. Mm-hmm. You're, you're mm-hmm. somehow. And I, I don't know. I just, this, this felt much more realistic about what damage you can do to yourself. If you, if you, are forced to live with an evil act and there's just no way out that there's no, yeah. there's no absolution. Yeah. There's no room, you know? Yeah. So, well, and, and in a lot of ways, sorry, I'm sorry, no. Nathan, no, no, but in, in a lot of ways, I mean, so much of what you said is very, is very profound and thought provoking. One of the things on this exoneration piece, because I think a lot of times I'm also thinking in my mind about, well, what, what does it kind of require when we, when we hold people to account and a lot of times what we ask of them is some sense of ownership. Like uh, you, you reference flatliners and we're not having a conversation about flatliners, but like really what largely sort of pays it out right there is, is who's willing to own their sin and who's in, still in perpetual denial of it. Um, and in many ways, sort of today, it feels like, and this is what I'm scratching at in my mind, it feels like kind of what people are pursuing in terms of accountability is ownership, is just the admission of what, just own what you did. Just mm-hmm. like ad- admit or or at the very least, you know, speak that this is what had happened, that this is what was done. And, and I feel like even if that was, you know, obviously in session nine, Gordon can't even verbalize it to your point. He can't even verbalize it to himself. He verbalizes it as a much milder. If what happened was a 10, I'm going to verbalize the five and I'm going to verbalize that, that this is kind of what I did. And and that can kind of scratch at the door of ownership, or it might be an illusion of ownership that I've confessed some, you know, much watered down, diluted version of of what it what it really was um and and what's interesting to me about that is in this conversation of forgiveness and it's something obviously i think in many ways it would be easy to say that largely forgiveness i'm gonna make a rather bold statement and i don't even know that i fully agree with it i'm just gonna throw it out there for exploration for us welcome to the show Matt. welcome to the show this is this is what we do i've been listening to your back catalog so i know that we we go this way very often (laughs) it's true it's true so one of the things he declares he's gonna make a bold statement distance himself from it then make the bold statement then decide to buy in on it (laughs) so like what i'm wrestling with is like you know who determines criteria for for forgiveness is the is is the question that I'm that I'm wrestling with who determines the criteria is the criteria defined objectively by a court of peers maybe or a jury of peers is the criteria defined by the victim by the wounded uh, which in that case how is that defined when the wounded right. as in the case of session 9 have been annihilated from the world so they they're not even invited to the conversation because their 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 victimization was was ultimate in right. that sense um 
and so and so that's really the wrestling is is what what defines the criteria for forgiveness obviously people of faith might might speculate that well the criteria is defined objectively and defined therefore by god or you know the moral standard holder the moral uh compass bearer but i think that's worth i think it's worth wrestling uh for ourselves even if we don't do that much of it in this conversation of of really in this conversation about accountability is well what is really the criteria for forgiveness and is the is the aim you know forgiveness or is it vengeance or whatever yeah go go ahead man well no and i, and I mean I, I think obviously the the you know i think when, when liz was talking obviously her her answer to that would be society has to collectively come up with an answer that decide, because we right. we we obviously want to hold people accountable but but i think part of this this is phenomenon that happens a lot on twitter and and again it's it's one of the reasons i probably should stop going on twitter is but what people <laughs> in general should stop where People get, you know, called out for bad behavior. And often it's, it's something horrible right. that they've done. Sometimes it's, I mean, you know, it may be, you know, some racist statement they've made, some racist thing they've done or some other, some other, sometimes it's, you know, it's a, a, a more significant crime that they've, you know, been caught up in. And right, right. Um, yes, people call them out and you're supposed to apologize. But, but then this thing happens is where if the person actually tries to apologize, then, the the Twitter hive mind comes in and collectively judges, criticizes. Well, is this this does sound right. like a real apology? Is it good enough? And it becomes this. It's not about genuine remorse. It's about can you perform mm. your yeah. act of contrition convincingly enough that people will let you that 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 the hive mind will say, okay, well, apparently you really are sorry and. You know, it it has nothing to do with yeah. It has nothing to do with an actual with an actual. Like the motivations have nothing really to do with finding justice there. It's more about just right. the, the joy of judging people who've been caught doing something bad, and that's a mm. different. Whereas what what you really need, it's like it's more for it, it, what you need is a is a more yes a more objective rule that we've decided on in advance without knowing who we're going to be judging or what we're going to be judging them for. And rather than something that's, that comes together on the fly and impromptu, that's the thing is like, yeah, this is off the cuff judgment that is not really, that at least some of the people participating in the conversation have no interest in genuine absolution. They just, they're just enjoying kicking someone when they're down and saying, Nope, you're not sorry enough. Keep going. And 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 feeling superior. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Well, it's interesting. I feel like, um, Uh, uh, it is not my interest to to make all of this conversation about uh, of a political nature, but it feels like we're close to it, so I'll at least touch okay. the rail. Um, <laughs> I well, I appreciate your invitation. Um, <laughs> yeah, <he's laughs> not sure all our listeners will, but I, there is a thing that uh, uh, really grieved me about. Our listeners will not be. Su- surprised at this particular take but you know our our most recent uh uh president uh and fear of a name begets fear of a thing itself thank you jk rowling trump the 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 nature of the person um is what kind of broke my heart because what you're identifying what it feels to me what i hear you identify is it's so hard to find a model of not even just contrition, just, just, it feels like we are, are, um, morally adrift 
And I actually don't mean that in this nihilistic, cynical type of way. I mean it in a, holy cow, there aren't models we can point to because the, you know, whether it's um, actual people occupying offices, whether it's disinformation that creates vacuums around people who might not be that bad, but now occupy office, whether it's uh, formally what we would have thought of as moral leadership in, you know, churches and, and civic institutions that uh, get found out for heinous wrongdoing, um, you know, that all I'm trying to articulate is this very real problem, whether it's on Twitter or whether it's local, that is a scary problem, which is the relativity of moral model, if that makes any sense whatsoever. No, I mean, um, it, 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 yeah, I think it's it's one of the it's it's one of the the inherent traps in a pluralistic society. If there is no absolute agreed upon moral center, and there can't be in in a society like America, then y- you always will run the risk of, you know, yeah, which system of justice do I appeal to with the thing like. Right. Again, if if the thing you've done is not literally a crime in particular, then you you right. run this like yeah you can just sort of shop. Where do I go to get the somebody to pat me on the head and say okay you're forgiven? No, don't worry about yeah. it. Yeah, and you know, and and that is why yes that the there's no absolution, but there's plenty of condemnation because everybody mm. everybody can find something to be angry at, and it's easy to whip up a mob. It's much harder though to to sort of agree, particularly on a society wide level, that okay. This is how we're going to, you know, rehabilitate these people. This is like, you know, we will hold them to account, but then this is the route we're going to offer them back into society, having first registered the gravity of what they have actually done. And right, right. All, all we can do is point a finger at this point. That that's the problem is we don't. There's no court you can go to for social, except the the court of public opinion, which is malleable and manipulable and fickle. Yes. Yeah. And sometimes grossly incorrect. Yeah. But yeah. you you make a good point tethering back to the film a bit here, Matt, of of Gordon specifically, which is an analog, uh, an echo of our own reality, which is when we can't when we can't internalize the means of of our own moral accountability, we warp the reality around us to accommodate our mm. right transgression yeah and and you're again tiptoeing onto the political you're you're seeing that in a very real way right now with with actual legislation that is being proposed and pushed and passed to accommodate a false reality and that is an insane thing because because if you spin that out because those you know legislation is a a traditional form of of action and, and and avenue of quote unquote change but when those start pinballing into into non-traditional forms of change, you see things like January 6th, yeah. mm-hmm. which is, right. okay, well, now action is happening to accommodate a reality that really is is, is false. Yeah. Um, and, and so, uh, not to, to piggyback too much, but the, the, just the more we get into this conversation, the more I'm, I'm, I'm so pleased to have been able to revisit this film because that's, that's, that's this sort of spiral that Gordon is on is is now he's actually like 
a a rampant serial killer, not in the sense where he like hunts them down, but kills everybody involved in this to the point that when McManus finally shows up and all McManus is doing is like, uh, what's going on? (laughs) My man's just a day laborer. He's like, I'm here. Where do I punch in at? (laughs) (laughs) This is your bonus. I got your ice pick right here. You know. Well, well, no, that was like, yeah, David Caruso sums it up personally. De- David Caruso's ghost, actually, at that point, where he's like, well, you know, Gordon, if you, I'd be careful. If if they find out about yeah. this one, they're going to find out about all the other ones. and All the other ones. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's the problem is that he, he's just basically the only way to protect himself from, you know, he's got to kill anyone who not might rat him out to other people, but anyone who might force him to acknowledge what he has done. And, right. Because the, the tricky thing... And I'm going to express a bit of my sort of theological framework here for a minute is one of the ways that I have always interpreted the presence of God from what I read in the scriptures and what I've experienced in my own life and in the way that my faith has played out is this notion of I am not afraid in my theological framework and in my prayers to be transparent with God for those who believe in him, like if I'm conversing with a deity, I'm transparent about what I've done because he, 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 he knows. presumably knows it all. So why would I try to hide any of that and, and believe in my theological framework that I will find in him a righteous judge in the sense of someone who knows all things and will lead me on a path to forgiveness. One of the things pivoting out of my theological framework to the sort of what we're scratching at, both in the context of what you just said about the David Caruso's ghost in session nine, like if you tell about this, you got to tell about everything else. And one of the things in the hive mind of the court of public opinion, and in many ways, just society at large is I think in many ways we perhaps knowingly, perhaps unknowingly, inhibit accountability by people not wanting to open Pandora's box. If I come forward and say that, look at what happened not that long ago with, I don't even remember the full context of the conversation, but look at what happened not that long ago with Liam Neeson, who did not experience a pervasive sense of things, but Liam Neeson had verbalized, from what I understood in the conversation, verbalized confessionally some racist tendencies that he had experienced and verbalizing them as a bad thing to be condemned and yet was momentarily skewered to the degree that the film that he had out at that point, people were like boycotting and everything like that. And and in those ways, it wrangles up the question of like, what do you really want? What is the goal? Do you really want someone to take ownership and learn and grow and and move forward into hopefully adopting a new mindset about these things? Or do you want people to have always gotten it right from the beginning and to have never done anything heinous, lest everything become a house of cards and crumble under them? And that's a it's dreadful the ways in which we are not places where someone can can come with it's hard to talk about minor and major offenses in these schemes because no, I know minor, I mean, that's that is where the yeah. difficulty lies. Obviously, that right. that if you are if you've been if you are black and have been the victim of racist violence, you may not be quite so quick to be, be correct. You know, forgiving yes. on that score, and that's fine. And I and I think there's right. also right. a cynical take that people have that you're only saying this to get a pass. You're not really you know and right and right. I. I think this is this is one of the difficulties, though, is that yeah, you've 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 got to be careful about who you confess to. <laughs> yeah, if you're going to confess right. your yeah. sins. You, yeah. you just need to be aware that not 
other people are not required to. They're not, they're not all priests who are required to respect the sanctity of the confessional or to give you the absolution you're seeking for. Some people are just going to say, you are the avatar of things I've been dealing with my whole life and I, I do not have any sympathy for you. And that right. may not be, that may not be a Christian response, but it is a human response. And yes, you're a fool course. if you don't think of that. And, and there are, yeah. there are, of course, cases of people who, who have this mistaken idea that, yes, all I have to do is confess and it's over. And, and mm-hmm. it's like, no, if, if particularly if the thing you've done is bad enough, you may have people who are going to say, well, thank you for confessing to that. Now you're going to be sorry. And I, <laughs> that's it. Right. Yeah. You know, you know, what's so funny is I thought about that today. Do you, I, I actually, you know, sort of liked the guy at least 15, 20 years ago when I saw his first film, but do y'all remember about two years ago in the height of me too, when Morgan Spurlock of, of supersize me made oh, some yeah. very confessional public yeah. statements that were like, why did you do that? Like not right. Uh, yeah. Right. Not as in we shouldn't be contrite. It's exactly your point, Matt. It was like, because what happened is his desire and intention for, you know, absolution was met with the meat grinder. No supersize me pun intended of, <laughs> of just like, whoa, that you, you, what you meant for a positive was, was placed in the wrong place. And, and, yeah. and that's right. stumbling into some profundity of, of where you place those confessions um, and those where, where is safe and right and comfortable. But what's scary is the world we've created right now, which is, you know, we we've referenced Twitter, you know, the, these big tech companies, these that, that don't care about your privacy, Matt Ruff don't care <laughs> about your, your inner life. Reed lackey. They, they right. use these thoughts against you for right. yeah. the algorithm, which, as we've talked about from Dr. Sleep, you know, uh, man takes a drink, drink takes a man. So, so to the algorithm and on we go and, and, and we're left as less than human, which is startling and and troubling. And that is, yeah. And it, it, you know, that's the other thing though, is when you confess part of confession, you are placing a burden on the people you're talking to and and they they may not be interested in that. They may be mad. Yeah. So Yeah. yeah, it, it certainly there is, there is a, you need to be smart about when when to open up and reveal yourself, but it's just there. There is a human need to be able to deal with past sins in some way, and I think yeah, I, it's weird to talk about it this way. I think one of the advantages that the few advantages that Gordon has is that he, he doesn't have to worry about the court of public opinion. Gordon's problem is just living with himself, and yeah, yeah. right, right. How do I? just admit to myself what I've done. It's like, you know, it's, it's understandable. If he, if he stands up and admits what he's done, he's going to go to jail for the rest of his life. And, Mm -hmm. but even that it was like, it's like, it's more a question of, but yes, but you still will be alive. How do you live with that knowledge? And that is really more of a personal route to forgiveness or, or, or some sort of salvation that he's got to find regardless of whether you know it's it's less about negotiating with what society is going to think with you and just is just how do you find a way to live in the knowledge of what you've done and i i think just be in in a way because his it's so obvious how other people are going to see him his only Mm -hmm. real negotiable problem is how is he going to live with himself and how is he going to yeah right and he can't, um, and he can't cope at that point. You know, we were, we're talking about like, who do you confess to? And I kept thinking back to the moment in the film, like, you know, it, it's hard to fully grasp. I think the, the film's probably clearer than I'm making it about when he kills all these people. But mm-hmm. at some point in the film, he confesses to David Caruso 
and yeah. even says like you can't tell the guys about this and david caruso is immediately very like come on man like of course like you're safe with me and then the first place he goes and tells the guys like look we got to get gordon yeah. off the <laughs> that was a hard pivot there for all oh you know <laughs> actually uh, it's funny I, I, my that was the thing about that is like i watched that scene a couple of times because it's true and mm. Part of the part of what he, I think he was doing there is like he was just desperately trying to float this version of the story to see how what people other would people say. would respond. Yeah. And I yeah. actually, looking at it more carefully, I felt like particularly when he asked David Caruso not to tell anybody, I I thought the the response was a bit more ambiguous. Like, you really think you can hide this that you hit your wife? Oh, yeah. Wow. And, yeah. Okay. And, yeah, and I, yeah. and there was a part of me that wondered if Gordon picked up on that too. And that fed further his paranoia because of course he ends up focusing the subset. Well, maybe, you know, there's people dead around here, but maybe it's, maybe it's you, David Crusoe. You did this. You did this because mm, I tried mm. to confess to you. I gave you this sort of half, half true version of what happened and you, you, you know, you, you were repulsed on some level by right, what I had done. Right. You didn't you didn't encourage me to say, you know, we can work through this. You were more like, huh. Mm, and I mm. I think he would have been very sensitive at that point to what obviously what other people are gonna think of him when they find out. And right. that that is not the response I know. If I had been in that situation, the way David Crusoe was reacting is not what I would have been looking for. I don't know. Yeah, right. Well, I'll yeah. say, I mean, the movie, the movie tricked me because, because th- this is the first time I'd seen it. And, you know, um, Reed, this is your second matter. I don't know how many times it's, it is for you, but the movie does a decent job of at least fainting towards all of them being possible suspects yeah. at a certain mm-hmm. point, you know, mm-hmm. uh, of what's transpiring or of one of them, you know, kind of shaking loose from reality. But I mean, I even wrote down. I'll own it. Um, maybe I deleted it because I realized m- the idiocy of my ways. I, I, I mean, I bought, I was like, it's, it's Caruso. Um, and they, <laughs> by the end of it, I was like, Oh, okay. It's not. Okay. Yeah. Right. That's, that's dark. Um, <laughs> so I want to ask you guys a question. This is, this is coming back up to the shallows a little bit for a little lightness. Sure. Okay. Okay. And then we right. can, if we want to, after this little story time, we can dive back into the depths. Um, and this is a question straight out of the film. So I'm going to ask it and I'm going to answer it, uh, while y'all think about what your answer will be. And as Gordon asks, Phil, so too, do I ask Reed and Matt guys, what is the stupidest thing you've ever done? Oh my God. <laughs> so, uh, again, I'm actually decoupling this a bit from a moralistic response, uh, but I had pondered that because when he asked that question, uh, listeners may not have discerned uh, these last months. Reed and I are very intentional about trying to be inquisitive towards each other about the material covering. When Gordon asked that question, I was like, there it is. There's a question. <laughs> so so I, I pondered this today. So while y'all are thinking about what's the stupidest thing you've ever done, uh, I'm emphasizing the stupid part for me. And so I'll, I'll let the listeners enjoy these tales. And if, if your brain allows you to pay attention to them while you think of your own thing, more power to you. Um, so I was processing, I was like, what is the dumbest thing? And specifically, I wanted to think of like as an adult, you know, cause clearly in the context of the movie, uh, heavy morality aside, it's, it's an adult stupid choice, not so much our, our idiocies as a kid. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to tell a, a funny story that's really going to illustrate how, how, uh, 
single-minded and stupid I can be if I work at it. So we've got three kids. The third one is omitted from this because I learned my lesson after two errors. So um, uh, uh, crib building, really strange diversion here or digression here, but crib building is the uh, topic of my stupidest thing I've ever done. So when our first child was, you know, either eminent or yeah, surely she was not quite born yet. Uh, uh, daddy wanted to prove his sort of spousal ingenuity and put the crib together. So, um, I'm, I'm working, uh, uh, tediously on this stupid crib in what would be the baby's room. And I put it together and I'm all proud of myself. And then I realized I put it together wrong, which if you know anything about how cribs are assembled is a real pain in the ass. And, um, so I, I have to, dismantle the script so then i put it back together and no it's quite true i put it together wrong again uh i really have a problem with instructions so <laughs> so that's kid one is putting a crib together incorrectly twice in the span of i don't know wow. 24 hours so kid number two rolls along and i've learned my lesson you know uh i'm gonna get this right I'm not gonna, i'm not gonna <laughs> fail my wife was working one day and the crib showed up uh, we had a ranch home, you know, it's a single story ranch home, uh, a living room area hall down the hallway was kid number two's room. And I turned on some tunes. Uh, I knew I had kid number one's errors in my head, cribs errors in my head. I'm like, I'm not going to do that again. So I've got this spacious room. I lay out all the stuff. I've got some tunes on my wife's working. I'm going to surprise her by putting this crib together while she's gone. And I succeed. I succeed in putting together kid number two's crib. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the problem then revealed itself when you really can't take a crib you assembled in one big room, squeeze it through a small hallway oh, no. to a bedroom oh. down the hall. Oh, no. Then, <laughs> <laughs> yes, gentlemen, adult friends, it got stuck in the hallway. Cause I was so mad trying to get this stupid crib and I left it. I left it suspended between the walls of the hallway in, in the air. I was like, I'm not, I'm so mad and so disheartened. Well. It feels so stupid. So at least the way Gordon phrases, what is the stupidest thing you've ever done? Incorrectly uh, reading friggin' instructions, uh, because sure enough, friends, the instructions while yes, teaching you how to assemble it, Yes. Also tell you where to assemble it. And it's in the destination room, not of some course. other room. But of course, I failed that yeah. part. So, yeah, that was what I thought about for what is the stupidest thing without getting hyper confessional here on the show <laughs> that I have ever done. So who would like to go next for the stupidest thing they've ever oh done? Oh, my gosh. Oh my gosh! Well, it's hard to. Uh, I, I'll jump on the so sword. So hard to choose. It's, yeah, <laughs> I know. That's like I'm like. That's I'm why like, I wanted to go first. Get get my stupidity yeah. out of the way, so you can feel the freedom. Well, to, you've also you know you also had the luxury of like thinking about this for a couple. You know of what's days, funny about you, you know? saying that? No, that was just today. Uh, oh. uh, what's funny about that is I thought about emailing both of you, like, "Hey, be prepared to answer the," and then I was just like, "Nah, I'll, I'll just, nah, I'll just have them first off the cuff anyway." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, put it on the put it on the fly. Yeah. Um. Gosh, it is it is really really hard. I, you know, to quote to quote Ash, uh, I'm going to do a lot of stupid things, and I've done a lot of <laughs> stupid things. Um, so I, it's it's funny because like 
on 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 one hand, there's all the the multitude of times that I you know my wife asks me to go look for something. I go look for it. I do not find it. Oh, she man. goes, and in two seconds, she has. She has pulled it forth and she has conjured it, you know, Akio, whatever I was looking I for. I just assume that is a character defect in me at this point. Like that's Yeah, that that's has like, to be on yeah, yeah, has to be on my end as well. Um gosh. I'm gonna need to, Matt, do you have something? Because I'm gonna need to I'm gonna need to actually like define something. Um, Everything that's I'm coming gonna, to me now. I'm is, gonna go with a Bob another Bob Farrell story, actually, the same one who told me the oh. story about the the yeah. Um so well, I think Bob would do, he'd have these amazing dinner parties at his house in Ithaca. And uh, I remember one time I was over there. And, um, and by the way, the only way I can tell this really stupid story is because it was followed by one of the smarter <laughs> things I ever did, which is, so we're in his kitchen waiting for these gigantic hamburgers to finish grilling. And I look up on top of Bob's refrigerator and I notice that there's a revolver sitting up there. And <laughs> my thought process is no one would leave a loaded revolver lying oh, no, out no. on top of a refrigerator at a dinner party when they knew strangers would be wandering in the house. So there's no reason to worry that this gun might be loaded. So I pick it up. Oh, no. <laughs> and there's this moment where I'm sitting there, geez, what should I do with this toy? Should I point oh, it at my head or should I just aim out the back of the, you know, like where should I, where should I be pointing it when I dry fire this obviously unloaded gun? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, um, Fortunately, I, at that point, made the smart decision to turn to Bob and say, Bob, this isn't loaded, right? Oh, oh my God. And his eyes get very, very big and is like, oh, yeah, I guess it is loaded. And it, <gasps> it was, in fact, a loaded revolver lying out in... Just in plain of, of everything. I mean, it was on top of the fridge. So if you were a kid, you wouldn't have been able to reach it. But, yeah. He'd, he'd, but if you were a house guest, a dinner guest, <laughs> <laughs> what's this? <laughs> oh my gosh! And you know, Whoa. I, I, I mean, so yeah, so he took that, put it in another room. <laughs> yeah, uh, of, of course, of course. But, safe. you know, it was, it was, and I, I know for, I, I know for a lot of people, I in in my in the circles I have these days, this would be seen as a heinous thing. This oversight, how how could you possibly do that? But sure, sure. There's this weird divide in America where you know there are people who have never been around guns who think of them as the one ring. You know, it's like this this mm, malevolent mm. object. Why would you possibly want it? And then there are people who have been around guns, which is like a bandsaw or any other, you know, potentially dangerous tool that you, you do need to be careful. You can't let your kids mm -hmm. play around near it, but accidents happen. Oversights happen. And it's, it's just, yeah. you know, talk about a lucky moment for Bob. I mean, I'm, I'm glad I didn't shoot myself in the head, but I wouldn't have had to live with the mistake. He would have. <laughs> oh my Lord. Ooh. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. Go ahead. Was that? <laughs> no, no, was that? No, that's the, 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 the. Okay. So I, I can appreciate that. Yeah. That feels in the spirit. Yeah. So I finally landed on one that okay. will not, you know, put me or or people that I love and am still interacting with at at profound risk. Um, okay. So I was. I was or literally. <laughs> right. 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 Uh, I was not yet married. Um, and was not even dating my wife at the time, and I needed a ride to the airport. Uh, from a girl that I at the time was fond of and had kind of tried to make some inclination towards like, oh, you know, would you like to go out sometime or whatever? And she wasn't really very interested. Um, and and I remember she had offered to give me a ride to the airport 
And I remember thinking, well, she's going to drop me off at the airport. And typically, with enough time, I like to go if I'm at the airport. Uh, I don't really suffer from flight anxiety, but it's nice to have like a, a, a glass of wine or something before you go to the airport, right? Well, I was anxious and nervous at the time. I was in my early 20s, and I was anxious and nervous at the time of like, okay, I, I, you know, wanting to be impressive or whatever. So I'm going to loosen myself up a little bit. You know, I'll have... Oh, I'll have maybe that maybe that second glass of wine, you know. <laughs> so so maybe maybe I'll maybe I'll. That do was that. your loaded gun right there. I was my loaded. Yeah. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah, but but unfortunately unfortunately mine did not end as copacetically as as Matt's story ended. So so I have the second glass and we get into the car and what you realize when you get into someone's car and they're driving is that when the way that they drive in the neighborhood. And the way that they drive on the freeway is going to be the same, but freeway is going to be just that much more heightened. And she was spiraling down the highway and just completely weaving in and out of traffic. And I realized about halfway through <laughs> that I was in a bit of a mayday situation as the passenger in the car of this person that I'm trying to impress. And uh, without getting too uh, gross about the whole thing, uh, the wine was not my friend, and it actually <laughs> caused me... <laughs> To lose every bit of what I had just consumed right there in the car of the person that I'm trying quite desperately in my life to be impressive towards. Wow. So so that Nailed all happened. It. Yeah, that all happened on the freeway. And and so then like and also like there's a there's a deadline to make it to the air to the airport and so like I get to the airport and have to like dramatically like find a bathroom. I had to like change my shirt oh, there, like, and and then had to had to kind of make it through the security gate. Had to make it, all, and of course, like, if you've if you've ever had the experience where you've drunk enough of anything that you would have thrown up, like, it was not like. Also, in my head, I'm just like, you know, it's not as if the buzz or whatever just evaporates with all of that. So yeah, that was. No, it just turns hmm. against you. Yes, yeah. it it all just it was one of the most miserable experiences. <laughs> I've ever had him. I just have this picture of of this car just careening into the LAX, you know, <laughs> oh uh, departures lane, and you just being booted out of it, and you're it was dragging terrible. yourself through the LAX airport, and like yeah, yeah, security's getting caught. You're barfing on them. That's a wonderful. Yeah. Needless to say, you. yeah. Needless to say, she never that, reciprocated. I'm proud of both any, of you. Those anything. are good stories. <laughs> this is fun. <laughs> back I'm glad into it was. The, glad back it was into the you. abyss with Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. Oh. But no, it's like but it, even still like, you know, and maybe this will be a, a path sort of out of the shallows back into it. It's like, you know, at, 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 when you, when you do stuff like that, there's even this sort of like pervasive guilt that haunts you afterwards because of sure. something that you've done that's that that was somewhat impulsive and you can even like connect the dots on like, well, no, you you don't understand because I was thinking this and I was thinking right. it would loosen me right. up and I was thinking it was all going to be fine and in point of fact, it was not fine and <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was you, anything but anything but yeah. but but it's like when you get to because there's also this there's also this moment and i didn't didn't clearly uh, things uh, with her worked out <laughs> yeah no no thank you um but then like you know getting getting into some depths without you know being hyper confessional myself either it's like then we probably all have those things and maybe pinged when you ask the question, or maybe it's just something that this sort of sort of sits with you. Of there are moments that I look back with profound regret, 
and sure. and oh, sure. moments yeah. that I look back and and it's like god if I could you know like there are the there are the pantheon of people who will say like you know no I live my life with no regrets and I live my life you know just you know all those things brought me here and I'm like no 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 I got a list like I've got a list of things that Knowing what I know now, I would love to go back and be like, dude, no, no, don't, don't do that. Don't say that. Don't interject that, that moment. You know, like I remember, uh, in, in high school and it was because it was in high school, uh, and, and with profound regret, I remember there was somebody, this is, this is kind of another story of sort of the, the unrequited affections of, you know, the many loves of Reed Lackey or whatever, but (laughs) there was one moment of which, um, there was a person who at the time, uh, and this was, this was actually an ex-girlfriend, mm-hmm. and at the time, uh, we were friendly, amicable, as it were, and she had come to me, and it was in high school, and she had come to me, she was in the band, and she had asked me what my opinion was of their performance that they had just done, oh, that boy. they had worked on. Go- yeah. That's and a landmine. It was a landmine, and I leapt on it like a gazelle. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just... I completely <laughs> like a gazelle. Wow. I wow. completely. You're I like com- you're like ninety pound Captain America jumping on that grenade. You're oh, like, I'll man. take it. I'll take it. And 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 I said a very very hurtful thing about my opinion of of their performance, not realizing. And this actually will again will pivot back into some things yeah. possibly with session nine because then what happened is she told. So many of her fellow bandmates, many of whom were my friends, told them what I had said, point blank, but what I had said about all of their hard work and Mm. what they had done to, you know, it's hard. You put yourself out there and you work really hard in high school band and everything. And I had reductively just sort of taken a cheap shot because of my personal feelings about the thing. And it actually spiraled in many ways to a very, very unpleasant high school year for me where it was like so many of my friends kind of turned on me and, and because I couldn't deny what had been said, I said it, you know, like this wasn't a misunderstanding. This was, I had been a raging jerk and had done so willingly and had no concept of the reciprocal things. And so when we talk about these kind of things and pivoting back into this conversation about like, Oh my God, what I wouldn't give to go back and just be a bigger person in that moment. What I wouldn't give to go back and just be, you know, wiser, smarter, more mature, because I would have saved myself a lot of heartache, but also would have spared the hurt that I'm sure other people who in other contexts might have trusted me, liked me, enjoyed my company, but now absolutely and unequivocally didn't because now, I was the guy who had said that thing. You now, know? Reed, take that scenario, and I'm, I'm actually not being jokey here. Take that scenario and and imagine it now in a always yeah. on cameras right. on social yeah. media world. I was thinking the same thing. It amplifies yeah. this. It, I don't know if y'all saw this story from a couple of years ago. I don't actually remember who the personality was, although there's, there's multiple stories about it at this point, but a, a female, I think it's maybe like a news personality or, or, or just entertainment personality who made some off color joke on Twitter, the, the, the bastion of, of nuance. And, <laughs> Then boarded a flight, like a 10 hour flight. Oh, yeah. This yes. is, uh, yeah. I, I'm not going to say her name because if yeah, people have yeah, forgotten, I don't it, actually I don't remember goodness, it. Yeah. But this off color comment got between her departure and arrival at her destination X amount mm. of hours later, 
had exploded across the internet. I think she, Matt, lost her job. Like, yeah, she, just was, this she, extreme... was flying, she was flying to South Africa, so it was like a 12-hour flight. That was it. That was it. So that she was, was it. out of touch for long enough for, yeah, the internet to do its thing. And so, yeah, she was fired wow. from her... Well, she was a she was a communications director, I believe. At, okay. So it was, it was not unreasonable that with that mm-hmm. scandal attached to her name at that point, they just kind of threw their hands up and said, yeah. you know, come yeah. on. Yeah. So no, yeah, she had fire. a bad few uh, i think she's actually working again now i i saw something about her like she's finally gotten past it but it's still attached to her name forever on google right so yeah now my oh, wife and i right. periodically will look at each other and say thank goodness we grew up you know prior to this yeah yeah um, which is it's so hard like i i just recently and this is definitely something i can't give too many details about i recently i'm a um in my day job i am a uh, a manager and i lead a team of people and we are going through some transitions in my company, and some of the processes are terribly, terribly frustrating. And, you know, without putting too much thing, too many things out on a ledge for obvious reasons, one of my employees got so frustrated at a process that they put something in writing. It was not addressed to a person, but they put something in writing that was a very aggressive kind of kind of profane thing and they had put it in writing with a little bit of impulsiveness not knowing how visible it was going to be turns out it was it was unfortunately quite visible and i had the moment where i really had to wrestle with advocating for this person and for what that what the value that they bring to the team in the face of this one moment of poor decision making and and I, i got to be i say get to be but you know like i was on the other side of the fence where here i am standing kind of in an advocacy position and saying, listen, you know, like termination is, a, is part of the discussion and punitive measures are part of the discussion. And I'm in a place to, you know, to try to be an advocate and to try to say like, yes, but let's look at the, mm-hmm. the, the factors. Let's look at everything that's going around. And what we're all talking about is like in that, in that spiral of things, there's, there's none of that going on. There's none of this whole sort of like benefit of the doubt extenuating circumstances none of that takes place it's all dreadfully reactionary it's all dreadfully swift and and i think getting back to something that we said earlier that that i I can't remember exactly what part of the context it came up in but i'm wrestling even in this conversation with how good it feels to feel superior to people oh yeah and how good it feels to be like (laughs) That that dummy said that, you know, like, I'm glad I didn't say that. And how quickly we can pivot into this seat of profound judgment and sit and be like, well, <laughs> I'm not that person. And I'm not, to, obviously, none of us are speaking about letting people off the hook who have committed egregious oh, no. ongoing criminal activity. You know, but it's not is, that. This is always a thing, though, and I, 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 I think it's Matthew's gospel where they there's a specific procedure for dealing with somebody is like you go first you go talk to them alone about yes. what they did and then right. you go with a small group of people and th- and it's only at that point after you've done this this quiet route to denounce them in front of the entire congregation and right. the reason for that right. is because even 2000 years ago people loved to form a mob and and cast stones right. for no just because it felt good and yeah that's why you you've really got to come up with this and that's the problem is twitter has made you know twitter and the internet generally have just made it much easier to go to the entire congregation immediately and if you do that there will always be somebody who's calling for blood and yeah yeah, so you do need to hold people accountable but part of that is giving them a way to learn from the mistakes that they make because we all Mm. do 
And mm, mm. even if it's something where, yeah, you, you, you've done something that clearly makes you, un, you know, you're no good for your job. Sometimes it might just be better to be quietly fired and you learn from the experience of having been fired and don't mm, do that again. Mm. Um, right. Rather right, than have it attached to your name forever. But of course, then there's always the other side of that, that is it, is it better, you know, do you want to err on the side of giving someone a second chance or do you want to be the guy who was responsible for letting somebody go who then goes on right. to do something worse? And I think a lot of people yeah. that there's that factor too. So, and again, it's no, all because absolutely. we're making this up as we go along rather than there's a set procedure. Right. No. I, well, no. but, but I feel like what, and, and I, I, swam us up to the the surface of the water and now by way of the film will swim us possibly back into the depths here what a i'm going to tag in the the um the final more or less coda of the film uh if you haven't seen the movie one of the workers has discovered uh, the session nine of the title is he's discovered this case file of this woman uh who i think in the timeline of the movie was 25 30 years prior something like that who was uh had multiple personalities and and one of them that i think correct me if i'm wrong y'all but doesn't simon he doesn't actually become an active present part of it until the very end like that's when he or yeah. is he just the one who's well, whispering it, the it's an interesting it's an interesting thing with simon and i was going to actually mention this that um this is my question for you guys, which which was about whether yeah. whether we felt that what I originally wrote was is Simon literal or figurative, but and and then what I changed it to is mm. real or imaginary. But I think the first version is probably closer to what I meant in that, yeah, she like Gordon, she kills her family, right, and in her case deals with it by developing multiple personalities, completely denying what happened, and mm. it's a dual defense where first of all nothing nothing happened, you know, in on Christmas night twenty one years ago, but if something did, it wasn't me. It was this guy, Simon, who was the real killer. And mm -hmm. the what's interesting about that is that the, the first time we hear Simon speak on the tapes, like, yeah, this, this one worker, Mike, he's, he's, um, he's constantly sneaking off. He finds these on the, uh, I think the first day, these tapes of these sessions of the psychiatrist interviewing Mary's alters and trying to get them to, to say on tape what happened so that he can convince her and, and make her remember what she did. Yeah. And he needs to get Simon to talk because Simon is the one who, so it, the implication is that Simon is the killer, is the, the mm -hmm. alter who actually mm -hmm. wielded the, you did whatever, whatever happened. But Simon does not speak on tape until almost the very end of the movie when the session right. nine tape is played and then comes out in this really creepy voice and is like, hello, mm -hmm. doc. And yeah, right. And Simon basically says that what happened on Christmas Eve is, yeah, Mary, Mary was playing hide and seek with her brother and he scared her brother. Peter scared her and snuck up behind her and jumped at her and she fell. She was holding a China doll and she fell on the doll and broke the doll and cut herself very badly and got very mad and, and got very hurt. And, and, and the doctor said, and then what happened, Simon? And Simon said as well, then I introduced myself to her. Yeah. And, God, so chilling. And, one of the things that's interesting about that that turn of phrase is like it's like it implies a prior existence. It's not like I right. you know I came into being as as the the instrument of her rage. It's like no, I introduced myself to her and I told her what to do. And that's what's also interesting is that Simon does not claim to be the killer. He says I told her what to do, but mm. she did it. Like she, yeah. she I told right. her you know to cut up Peter because Peter got a knife for Christmas, <laughs> so she apparently mm -hmm. took Peter's mm -hmm. knife away and killed him, and then she killed her parents so that. 
you know, so she was worried her parents might get bad, so I told her to kill them too. And right, wow. And this is the throwback to the first time we actually hear Simon speak is is in in the film is actually much earlier. It's in the first ten minutes when um, yeah. David Caruso and 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 uh, Peter Mullen, who plays Gordon, are, are being first shown around the the campus at this place, and um, they're in the A wing, looking down the hall at this. Um, it, it looks like a wheelchair, but it actually is a, is a restraint chair that's used to right. move violent patients around, and it's just been abandoned at the end of this creepy, decrepit corridor. And there's light shining on it from this room, and this is the image on the poster that the, yeah. the movie poster and. What we don't learn until much later is that room that the light is coming out of is the room that Mary Hobbs was housed in. This is the A-wing mm-hmm. for the most dangerous patients. And Gordon is mesmerized by this. And the other two guys wander off. And then Gordon, you know, as he's staring at this restraint chair, hears the voice. we hear the voice of Simon say, hello, Gordon. And he's, right, he's introducing right. himself. And mm-hmm. what's really interesting about this in terms of the timeline is at this point, Gordon's family is still alive. Like mm-hmm. he hasn't killed them yet. He's go, what's going to happen is they're going to get the bid that, you know, they're going to, and, and that's the other interesting thing about the f- f- first few moments of the movie is that Gordon makes it very clear that like he's, he's, he's fronting the guy that he's responsible and he wants the job safe. But then when, you know, he realizes the only way to get the bid is to promise that we can do this really quickly. He yeah. promised we can do a job that really should take three weeks. We're going to do it in a week. And even David Caruso is looking at him and like, you, are you crazy? You're crazy. Yeah. Right. So he's playing fast and loose, but they get the bid and he goes home, you know, he's got champagne and flowers. And that is the, it's at that moment when he should be celebrating that, you know, I've saved the business. We've got the job that we needed to get to keep the business from folding. And then just something happens where this pot of boiling water gets spilled on him. And he just goes off and kills his wife and kills his kid. And, um, but all of that is like, that's still in the future when we first hear Simon speak. And so, right, right. so there's a, there's, there's a straightforward version of the story where it's, it's a story of two people with parallel descents into madness, you know, Mary Hobbs and, 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 uh, and Gordon. But then there's this question, well, is there more to Simon? And like the, I suppose the, 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 the most literal way would be that Simon is some kind of demon who attaches himself mm, and, right. and mm, possesses, mm. First, this woman, and then is waiting for someone else to come along at the right moment and possesses Gordon. But there are also intermediary takes on that you could have. And I'm just curious what your guys' thought was about. Um... So, I, yeah, I can answer unless you have something burning, Nathan. Something burning, Nathan. Oh, yeah, something. Let's oh, pull the no. pot of boiling water on oh, me. Oh, oh, no. Oh, no. Um, so, my take on it was that it was. The last line of the film mm-hmm. is Simon's voice saying, I live in the weak and the wounded. Yeah, it's a great line. Yeah. Wonderful. It's and it's and it's haunting in its implications retroactively to what it what it plays out. My feeling about this interpretation of it is that um I did not take it as literal to the sense of like that Simon is an entity that emerges uh, you know, opportunistically into people with this condition. But I did take it as a commonality among anybody who has been so severely weak and wounded that they are susceptible to those sorts of, uh, of sort of uh, outbreaks, if you will. So I did not, and in fact, did not even think about it until you raised your question of whether that might be 
a, 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 a sort of spiritual presence. The film might call him a ghost or, or a demon mm-hmm. uh, or, or if it was, you know, some sort of otherness that sort of crept in and realizes like, oh, this this guy, Gordon is weak. Gordon is wounded. I'm going to seize hold of this. Um, but I felt in my viewing of the film that it was more uh, sort of the common experience that people had of you know, sort of a, a brokenness to their psyche, you know, something that uh, to what we're talking about, the, the coping mechanisms that people introduce to themselves to deal with what they've done. And uh, this this woman, Mary Hobbs, introduces this personality of Simon. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe for Gordon, it was, you know, well, I'm going to paint a completely fictional narrative in my head. Um, And Simon really, to Gordon, Simon is the background. He's, you know, we don't even put together who this voice is that's talking to Gordon until it's all revealed at the end when, when it's unpacking session nine. Um, But obviously the, the, the session nine of the title, Brad Anderson, the film, or sorry, Joel Anderson. um, He is Brad, Brad. Oh, it's Brad Anderson. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. 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 Did Joel Anderson write the, Anyway, I think there's another film that we're covering. I think that that's Hans jo- Christian Anderson. Yeah, that's what it is. It it's is. a little natural. <laughs> yeah, he's really thinking. So, <laughs> so um, no, no, no. So, so um, he's, you know, obviously he's titled this this piece Session Nine, and fundamentally, I think the third act of the film or the last, you know, ten fifteen minutes of the film are meant to be the Session Nine yeah. of Gordon to, you know, for him, um, and where this all kind of kind of unravels. So. To answer your question more succinctly, I viewed it as a as a common ground, but not necessarily a literal other entity that seized opportunistically this thing, but rather just a common experience among the weak and the wounded. That was my take on it. Nathan, I don't know if you'd feel the yeah, same. Yeah, well, I think it's a valuable question, um, and I think it's, a, as you, I'll echo you there, Matt, it's a powerful line. I mean, just just a, 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 an excellent bit of scripting that, that kind of punches you in the gut at the end. I mean, you're, you're kind of like, oh, wow, this is a real harrowing tale of these people and this guy's, you know, spiral here. And then that line happens like, oh, junk. Partly, I'm going to, I'm going to marry, uh, some of what we've been talking about here. Something I was, a podcast I was listening to recently, Richard Rohr, you know, listeners will, will know my affection for that personality, but he kept talking about the inherent dignity of people and how, things like social media have a capacity to deny the inherent dignity of people and, and, and stoke our animus and judgmentalism of folks, which then denies them their inherent dignity. And so I think kind of grafting that idea here is, and, 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 and even intertwining that, at least attempting to with these notions of self forgiveness and, and in the face of transgression, however heinous, I think to me, what's scary and powerful about the line, I live in the weak and wounded spoken by another voice and, and is, is that to me, while Gordon is the most, is the tip of the spear in terms of manifesting these things, I think all more or less all of the guys have a spectrum of indulgence of quote unquote weakness and and quote unquote woundedness. And, And I think, I think what, what what can be disheartening what can be troubling which what can be even debilitating about operating in the world we currently all operate in is is we're taught told conditioned that weakness and woundedness are defects and errors and are mm-hmm. things that that 
are not just to be ashamed of, but are meant to be stifled, hindered, suppressed. When in fact, that's just a part of the inherent nature of our humanness, that it's when we deny weakness, when we deny woundedness. And that's why I think the movie is really powerful from this standpoint of it. It villainizes that notion. It, it, mm-hmm. it, it, it manifests it. Um, because, because honestly, what, what I wrote down after that line that is sort of meant at this point in our current conversation to be a bit rhetorical is, is how, is how hard is it for the two of you? How hard is it for me marrying into this question to tune out those voices? Cause we have those voices. Like it, Simon, the, the sort of quote unquote character is, is a, is a metaphor in this heightened nature of this film. But, but I will, I will be very confessional here probably about six months ago in a, in a moment that, and maybe it was pandemic related and, and I'm just not charting my own sort of mental health well enough, but I had a very real bout of what I'll clinically call negative self-talk that, that really paralyzed me for a few days and, and even just kind of being out of it was, was, or walking completely free of it took a while and took some confession with my spouse and, 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 and how foreign that was to me to, um, not to feel down or occasionally, you know, uh, depressed might be the wrong word there, but to, to just feel that negativity and to have assignment in my head to, to put a finer point on it, to have assignment in my own head saying, you're not good enough. You are weak. You are wounded. And that is a thing to, for which to be ashamed. And those were new. It was new levels of experience for that. And so for me, I think, I think we do a whole lot in our lives and in our world and in the mechanisms at our disposal to stymie, stifle and deny our weakness and our woundedness when, if anything, and by no means am I good at it, but we should, we should, walk with that you know own that be be acknowledge it live into it you know because it's only in that that smallness that localness that selfness that weakness that woundedness that we're able to then i think sort of see the inherent dignity in everybody else like i know my capacity i know my limits i know my frailty i know by virtue of knowing those things can acknowledge and see that in you too, Matt and you too read for whom I now can reduce the, my own willingness to judge that. I don't know if that makes any right. sense, but no, it does. And, and I, I mean, it's true that you, you have to, that is the one other thing confession is good for. It's a way of letting somebody know, I understand why you did what you did because I've, I am human too. And I'm, I'm, right, you right. know, um, that is that is the one case where confessing something publicly, you know, not as a place a burden on someone else to forgive you, but rather to lift a burden from somebody else and thinking they're the only one yeah. who's ever failed. Um, yeah. I right. think can be right. can be worthwhile. Um, yeah. So yeah. my my answer to my own question is yeah, I I too come down somewhere in the middle that I I certainly I I don't think it needs to be a literal possession. It's more a, right. a right. but it's more like a figurative. Simon is that potential in all of us to yeah. give into our worst side. And, you know, Mary's right. just literalized it. And 
obviously it you know it's it a version of Simon exists in Gordon and is is eating away at him even as he's desperately trying to salvage his business there at the beginning and it, it you know it follows right. him home and there's also something mm-hmm. that the, the actors talk about in the in, in the commentary and in the making of feature of this film which is also if you if you if you haven't seen it it's worth renting the DVD just to get those extras where they talk mm-hmm. about the the building itself really had a toll on them. It, yeah. It, and there is that, that, that is one of the, the ongoing themes of the, the movie is, is just sort of infection or possession. Like the whole thing, these guys work with asbestos and that, you know, just a little grain of this gets into you and it starts eating away at you over time. And it's like a time bomb. Yeah. And, same thing that sort of just the knowledge of what these inmates had been through or these these patients had been through at the asylum like they talk about the, this is where the you know the frontal lobotomy was perfected mm, yeah <laughs> um, wow. so it it you know it, it, the 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 physical location just just gets under their skin as well and it's one of the things that's another really evocative thing about the movie is just i i i kept being blown away by the 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 physical the, the visuals of it Right, right. Yeah. There's something. There's something that, uh, and maybe this will sort of unite everything in a way that gives us a launch pad towards towards landing home, or, <laughs> or you know, maybe it'll maybe it'll spark some more conversation. But you know, that final line: "I live in the weak and the wounded." And there's a scripture verse that I think about often, and it's 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 oft uh, cited when Paul was talking about he has a Paul was uh, writing about this thorn in his flesh that's how he described it and talked about how like he had, it, there was this thing about him um historians and theologians have argued and debated endlessly about what it might be but the point being that he he says in this writing in the scriptures that his response from the lord was that the lord's grace was sufficient because his strength the lord's strength was made perfect in weakness. And I'm thinking about wrestling with all of these notions of the ways in which we will deny ourselves these truths because we see weakness and woundedness as a defect, as a deficiency. Mm -hmm. And getting back to something, Matt, that you said near the very beginning is how do we cope if we don't see a path for forgiveness? Mm -hmm. And how do we cope with, with what we've done or at the risk of being reducted, our weakness our woundedness. How do we cope with that? Now, of course, Gordon in the film has done a heinous thing, and and just 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 an awful thing. Um, you know, just egregiously wicked and 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 uh, volcanic in its damage to to a to a psyche. But in a general sense, and we've talked frequently on the show about how it's actually the it's actually winning the battles on the little things that position you to perhaps have some success at the bigger battles that it's winning at the smaller sort of things uh, that, that help you condition you to face the bigger challenges. And I'm thinking just a, just a little thing about like just understanding that your weakness and your woundedness does not necessarily have to define you. And it does not necessarily have to be the verdict on your life. The verdict on your character doesn't necessarily have to be something, you know, <laughs> talked about. I've always found it a bit silly. So forgive me, uh, those of you who frequently exercise where it's like, oh, uh, <laughs> pain is weakness leaving the body. You know, like that's the kind of the reductive thing is like, oh, you know, experience the pain because that's weakness leaving the body and everything. And and to me, you know, I'm just I, I, I think about all these things uh, and in a way that I hope will be coherent. I think about maybe maybe part of what is at play 
when in the scriptures the Lord says back to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, is that, like, if, if I can be very, very presumptive and speak for God to Paul, which is a heinous hubris to try to embrace. Eh, but, go for it. Sure, why not? Why not? It's the fear of God, so this is kind of what we do. Um, m- my strength is made perfect in your weakness in that I have a path to redemption for you. I have a path to forgiveness for you. That is not merely, as you had extrapolated earlier, exoneration. That is not merely, uh, you know, just excusing. I have a path to where your weakness and your woundedness that when when positioned in light of maybe authentic grace and authentic forgiveness, which God, maybe the three of us don't know, and maybe society at large certainly doesn't know what that looks like, but maybe if there were a hope and a path, that that strength, that strength of being able to to lead and guide into redemption, into holistic forgiveness, into holistic reconciliation, if that were possible, that that strength would be made perfect through the weakness, not by denying it, not by pretending it didn't exist, but by openly acknowledging, like, this is our problem. And we and we look at things collectively. Society loves to feel superior. Therefore, society loves, and I say society, obviously it's made up of a bunch of individuals who just feel really good that they're better than X person or Y person, and they're better at doing whatever it is I was reading just recently, I won't share the context, but I was reading just recently where somebody uh, was talking about a creative exploration of a problematic thing, and somebody on social media had said, are they really qualified to explore that? And I remember <laughs> it, I sort of I sort of bristled at that, like, wait a second, you have to be qualified to explore something in a context that will, you know, maybe, I, you know, I don't know. And so the conversation for another time, but what I keep thinking about is, the addiction or the compulsion or the need that we have to feel superior when in point of fact, if we were all collectively able to embrace our own weakness and our own woundedness and be honest with ourselves about where we've fallen short, maybe we would stumble upon a path that would allow us to be a bit more uh, advocating, perhaps, or, or at least uh, understanding. Um, and in the scriptures, I don't know the actual Greek word. But what is interesting is that there is there is a, a Greek word that in translation could either be translated as understanding or overcoming. Mm. And and it has always struck me, well, I say always, as long as I've comprehended this, that you know, to understand something is to get on top of it. That if we are able collectively to kind of reach a path to where we can we can comprehend something and understand it, maybe we will have a fair shot at overcoming it. And systemically speaking, some of these things that people tear them down for, like sexist speech, um, uh, racist speech, uh, think ideologies that are pervasive in our in our systems and in our societies, that we would perhaps rightfully point our finger at and say. Thou shalt not do that. You should not, you know, behave this way or speak this way or or uh, prop up this way. But maybe, and this is talk about a read bold statement. Maybe we will never have a chance at ever getting over that as a society if we do not introduce a a, a brand of collective understanding, not necessarily something that ex- absolves and exonerates all of the wrongdoers, but acknowledges our complicity in it and acknowledges the way in which we ourselves are also capable of heinous wrongdoing, capable of m- maybe more minor stumblings or, or whatever, and that maybe if we were willing collectively 
to reject the addiction to feel superior to someone and in point of fact uh, engage the conversation with a bit more of a humble mindset, maybe we would actually have a shot at understanding it and maybe God willing, have a shot at, at, at overcoming it, you know, uh, as a result. Hopefully those thoughts made sense, but that's, no, yeah, that's what it does. And, and I, I would say it's, it's still a, it's still a tough hill to climb, but I think getting a general sense of, of getting at least everyone to acknowledge that we are all human and prone to error is at least a somewhat less daunting task than getting us all to agree on, on which moral authority we ought to right. follow. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. No, I absolutely agree. Well, I want to take the, I want to take the opportunity to, uh, you know, either, either to Matt or to Nathan, if there's anything about the film session nine or about this subject has been itching and you just been waiting for your turn to say something, uh, before we wind it down and go to our, our ranking meter, is there anything that, that hasn't been brought up that we want to bring up before we kind of close things down from either of you? If we're good, we're good. But if not, then I want to give I, a platform. I, I, I have many more comments I could make about the specific film, but I, I don't know that anything that, that it needs to be said i think people will you know should definitely check it out if, if our conversation has intrigued you at all it's a worthwhile yeah. movie to, to investigate and it's it well, works on a lot of amazing levels i think and matt yeah. i'm 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 naming it so that i can claim it here <laughs> listeners uh, a couple weeks ago we started this with uh, asia schwarzentruber's afterthoughts on rosemary's baby last week candle cove matt if you got some more thoughts about session nine an afterthoughts article, you know, I'm just I, saying, just put I, it out I, there. No, no, I, I will. I'm, I'm definitely, I've definitely come up with something to talk about. It's like, yeah, my other, my other goofy question that I wrote down, which I, I won't ask you to, to go into, but it was funny. I was like, my goofy question was, what would the sequel be about? Mm, session oh, 10. Ooh. Yes. Yes. <laughs> this, is a movie that, this is a movie that should not, not have a sequel, but if, Simon were to introduce himself to you and give you a big mm. pile of money. What what horrible sequel idea could you come up with? So maybe I'll Ooh. maybe I'll write yeah. a blog post about that. But maybe maybe, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fascinating. Um, so uh, Nathan, do you want to introduce uh, the fog meter? Sure. If yes, you will, the fog um, meter, uh, uh, our unique metric for uh, how we. Um, express our appreciation for the films we cover, uh, specifically uh, under the uh, language of fear, how scary a thing was, and God, how substantive a thing was. Um, I'll start with fear, and then we can go to Matt and and Reed. We'll, we'll kind of circle around that way, perhaps. Um, okay. This is my first time seeing it. I, honestly, I don't even know that I'd heard of it. Um, and so was kind of surprised to see familiar faces in it. Um, uh, so I, I'll say for myself personally, it was a pretty dreadful viewing, um, just because of the tone is pretty dark. The, the energy is very heavy. Um, and, and that, as I've already said, that gut punch of a final line definitely, definitely leaves you feeling like Gordon staring at the wall. Like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm weak and wounded. Uh oh. Um, so I think for me, I might give session nine. <laughs> I'm not going to give it a nine, though. I had the impulse to just then. Uh, an eight. I, I'm going to get. I'm going to give it an eight on the fear factor. It it definitely, it definitely makes an impact. What about you, Matt? I think I put it at roughly the same place because uh, it. Yeah, it was it the the again it it just a, a wonderful buildup of dread, but. 
there are a few films I could name that either made me much more uncomfortable to the point where, you know, I recognized that they were good, but I had a really hard time finishing them because they just took me so far beyond my comfort zone. And, and there yeah. are also films that have done sustained terror in a way that, you know, the, the kind of movie where you can't, you, you realize, why did I start watching this with the lights off? You know, and, and <laughs> right. this is not that kind of film. This is in, in the, the dread is there, the fear is there, but it's not, I never felt physically threatened or like that fight, that fight or flight response you get from a, a super scary movie. It, it's, it's strengths are in other areas. And um, yeah, so I, I think eight is about appropriate. I was, I was I fearful say, for my soul more than my, I, yeah. 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 But, <laughs> right. but for a movie that doesn't traffic in a lot of like traditional, you know, uh, jump scare type conventions, Jeff's Jeff in the tunnel was a lot. Oh yeah. That was, oh, yeah, like, that that was, was that was scene. that was my well yeah and that that fits right into the sort of like I could totally see yeah yeah you go you go in at night alone and mm. of course Mr. Obsessive Compulsive here I'd be like not only am I gathering up all these coins that I found but I'm breaching around making sure I've got them all before I can leave <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah, and, no, yeah right, no. so I I yeah that was that was wicked scary that that part for sure um very very visceral but right. that's 45 minutes into the film which is what's amazing right. that is like the first 45 minutes that's the first really unquestionably horrific event so that's the other thing this film just is not afraid to take its time and it's it's not boring like the right the prior 45 Absolutely. minutes are engaging and, and there's dread but it's like it's not till like the middle of the movie that things start happening and then that one well, Piece of the final part are like really yeah. yeah. Well, and you're talking about Hank with the coins. I oh, mean, yeah. even Jeff with the generator in the tunnel. Oh gosh, when I'm the sorry. lights go out, when he's oh, running, that's fine. Both running of those away are, from the darkness. Oh man, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. no, I absolutely. Mean, so um, oh, I'm right. gonna mullet head Jeff. I'm sorry, I got the name. That's no, right. No, 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 you're no, fine. That's right. They both um, are impactful. Yep. I'm gonna I'm gonna up the ante here. Y'all oh, went boy. for eight. I, I, f- I feel like eight is 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 fair and appropriate. But I am gonna go for nine on the fear factor because I feel being, like you're just being cutesy. It, but perhaps a bit. But um, <laughs> I, two, gla- two glasses of wine. Two yeah, two glasses of wine. Take me to the airport. So <laughs> it'll be a good time. I promise you. So um, <laughs> so but no, like I really felt for a film that, as we've stated multiple times, is not relying on jump scares but rather on steadily ratcheting dread and and does so in broad daylight for much of its yeah. you know yeah. from from for much of its uh scene setting um is really very effective and i feel like it's got the potential to get under your skin in the way that a film with this clearly with this budget um and with this premise and with this sort of first 45 minutes as Matt pointed out before anything sort of really terrible kind of happens um it's it's remarkably effective so yes yeah, so i'm going to go for i'm going to go for a 9 on the fear factor um if you don't mind i'll go ahead and Do and pit, pitch for the for the god factor or b- basically how substantive the film is and um as i've mentioned before you know i usually pivot this rating based on what i feel like the film has on its mind and I feel like in some pretty subversive ways and subtle ways, the film really scratches at quite a bit. Maybe not to the degree that it would be, you know, think pieces for every single person seeing it. But I think it has a lot on its mind. Obviously, we've had a conversation spawned from it that, I, that I've, I've found very enlightening and, and challenging. We've talked less about ways. the film and more about the ideas that the film made us think about. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and so to that end, I'm going to be kind of a bit generous with my with my God meter as well, and I'm going to give that an eight. Oh, so. I thought you were about to do the nine thing again. I was like, all right, Ray Ray. <laughs> well, don't judge me before I even spit my rating out. You know, benefit of the doubt, Nathan. Yes. <laughs> what about you? Uh, Matt? How about for yeah? How about for you, Matt? Yeah, I think I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go for nine on that one. Um, mm-hmm. I I um, yeah I this maybe this is what I really should talk about in my in my follow up blog post though. Part of what fascinated me about it is again watching the the making of and and listening to the director's commentary. You realize how much of this. This is a film that really benefited from really good editing that hmm. they there's a whole subplot involving a homeless woman living inside yeah. the asylum that is cut from the final uh, cut of the film. And I, I think the film is better for having left her out, it, among other yeah. things that in, in that version of the film, she kills him at the end, which I think is a mistake. I think leaving him alive, hmm. alone in seclusion is a much more powerful ending. But no, I agree. But but part of what just struck me about this is like, wow, you guys, you know, I, I'm much more the, by the time I've written it down, I know the right answer, how the story should go. And the idea that you would go in and film and, and really not know exactly how it's going to end is like, wow, that's that's amazing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's a sense in which I think they, they part of this was that they got really lucky. They, they made some good choices, but they also got lucky. They may have struck gold in a way they, they didn't fully realize. So that's where I'd, mm. I'd probably give it a nine rather than a 10, I think, because we may be seeing stuff that they didn't necessarily put there or that they just yeah. they just lucked into. Right. Um, mm. And I'll say, too, the yeah. other thing, like when I was doing the likes and dislikes, which we actually never got to, my only real dislike of the film was a meta dislike, which was that. I, after I, I saw this, I immediately went out and tried to find every other Brad Anderson directed film, and none oh, of them right. none of them work for me the way this one does. There are huh. there are there are a number that are very interesting, and I like the premises, but the execution does not affect me nearly so well. And uh, ah, and understood. again, I feel like it's like maybe part of that is just in this particular case, he made some really good decisions in the editing that elevated it above what he realized he was doing, and he just never got there again, or at least not in the stuff I've seen. Yeah. So. No, that ma- no, that makes a lot of sense. His other most prominent one that I'm aware of is The Machinist, um, which I which I like, but admittedly have only seen once. Uh, like I remember it. Yeah, but that would be my second never- best of his his pieces. I think it's effective, but part of it is I I I feel like the premise in that one I knew what the I knew what was happening right away, and mm-hmm. I felt like I'd seen it done before. But- sure. Yeah, and it's never it never bodes well for a film. And Nathan, I promise you're going to get a, your your god meter. But uh, it never bodes well for a film where what the most memorable thing about the film is is the lead actor's trans physical transformation. Yeah, and that's what most people sort of zone in on about the film, rather than sort of elements you know of the yeah. narrative itself. But uh, anyway, Nathan, what's, what would you? What's give hilarious a about that anecdote is, if anything, the machinist has always just been to me the funny story about how. Christian Bale, when Nolan tried to pitch him to Warner Brothers, had right. lost too much weight for the Machinist, uh, uh, so that then they didn't initially buy him as as Batman, um, <laughs> <laughs> and then he and then he over bulked up. Funny story there, but uh, for me, I this is a, my first viewing um, with with minimal uh, extra textual material i'm gonna i'm gonna land at a seven uh which sounds uh conservative to where y'all were but feels like okay i i do think there's something here to your point matt i'm not 100 percent sure if the film knows what yeah. it's got and so that's why i'm kind of erring towards the that's seven fair. a little bit totally fair. um so yeah yeah Reed. yeah so that means that we collectively give 
Session 9, uh, written and directed by Brad Anderson, and 8 out of 10 on the fog meter, which I think is a pretty strong showing. I feel like and I think, if I gave it an 8, would it land at a 9? Because that would feel more... more no, it'd have, to go, okay, it had, okay. it'd have to go pretty higher, but okay, okay. <laughs> that's, that's funny. Um, so that's that, and uh, and I know like we've kind of been commenting about this uh, by and large, but we'll just do a quick round robin of uh, would you, and Matt, I'll start with you because I think this is probably a pretty easy answer, is would you recommend Session 9 for viewers to oh, check yeah, out? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, and I, how about you, Nathan? Oh, sorry, I didn't mean no, to cut no, no, you no, off. No, no, I'm just saying, I, I, I really hope we haven't spoiled it for you, but it, the fact is, the truth is, the fact that we've talked so little about the movie itself and more about what it what it made us think <laughs> right. about, you, you, know, you know kind of what happens, but it's still, there's still going to be plenty of surprises in there. Absolutely, absolutely. What about you, Nathan? First time viewing, would you recommend Session 9? Yeah. I mean, if anything, I was left a little more unnerved by it and thought, I don't know. Um, yeah. You know, I, I don't think there's anything baldly offensive to viewers, especially our listeners. You know, it, right. if anything, I think watch it. Just, just you know, get a blankie and, you know, a <laughs> snacky. One other point to make, just in case yeah. anyone is wondering about this, like the the, the murder of Gordon's wife and, uh, and infant daughter – Part of part of a really smart choice they made. And this is another thing about the film. The sound design is amazing, which is ordinarily something <clears> I would not <throat> even <throat> notice. But we never see what he does. We hear it. Um, and that is in many ways much more harrowing. But it wouldn't have worked visually. It would have been just too awful. Yeah. yeah. And well, it's funny. That, you re- yeah. I, I was going to say, it's funny you you reminding me of that because I'm, I'm now remembering my experience of those last few minutes because – I'm not making this up. I really thought, oh, they're telling us it's David Caruso until suddenly they were telling us it's not David Caruso very right, explicitly. Right. But that scene when Gordon's reliving those memories, that's when your heart just goes into your mm. stomach. Um, so, yeah, to, to the question of recommendation, I do recommend it. I think our listeners would find a lot to appreciate about it. I think it's pretty dreadful just as, it is. as yeah, a no. piece. Yeah, but in absolutely. terms of it, in terms of gratuitous graphic violence, there sure. there is there is a little. There is certainly that one right. scene which we won't go into detail about. But as far as you, you're not going to see the the actual slaughter of his family, and a lot of the violence yeah, right. is implied. It's more you see the aftermath, the wreckage of it, than the stuff. Exactly happening. right. Yeah, and it was it, remarkably restrained in that end, and I think to the the benefit of the film's power i think it's all the yeah. more you know like like we've unpacked i think it's all the more powerful for it i of course highly recommend it i saw it uh for the first time back in the old college days when uh nathan and i were were at our alma mater and uh and this is this was my second time getting to see it and i i i was pretty impressed with how much it still held up really well um and i feel like it's definitely a film that is remarkably accessible uh which is surprising given its premise and what we've yeah. you know already extra- explained about its its underlying conceit uh but it's a remarkably accessible film and i think our i do agree i think our listeners would get a lot out of it so um that is our uh conversation about session nine directed by brad anderson and uh and and first of all i want to say matt thank you so much oh, no, for man, recommending thank- this piece and yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, actually. And I, I, it's funny. I had watched it so many times that I actually had to stop for a while because I, I knew it too well. It was kind of a pleasure to go back and I'd actually forgotten a few things. So oh, that's awesome. It was good to have an excuse to do that and to, to re, re, reacquaint myself with it. So, yeah, this was a real pleasure. And, uh, awesome. Thanks, and we... 
Yeah, absolutely. And we've been so delighted to have you back on the show again. You're just, you know, consider yourself part of the fog fam because like, yeah, we just, we just absolutely love it. So we'll, uh, we'll do this again. And, uh, and Nathan, as always, thank you so much for giving me the platform to sort of unearth my ideas and tell embarrassing stories about how I threw up on the way to the airport. Uh, You are welcome. (laughs) Also great, great fun for me. Um, So next week uh, we are going to be continuing with another listener curated hashtag what scares us uh, film uh, another bit of an understated piece which I, I love so many of these uh, are um, it's a film that I think uh, a lot of people maybe have not had the opportunity to see or maybe they've heard the title uh, sort of uh, drifting in the ether I, I looked it up to confirm written and directed by Joel Anderson this is what I got tripped up <laughs> by <laughs> earlier written and directed by Joel Anderson it is the film Lake Mungo and so next oh, week we will okay. be having a conversation about Lake Mungo um, which uh, if if anybody is uh, looking for a place I think it's available on all the major outlets to rent uh, I think it might be streaming on Shutter right now but Lake Mungo written and directed by Joel Anderson is our piece next week uh, so join us there and as we say on every single episode fear of God is the beginning of wisdom but not the end of the conversation and in that spirit we encourage you to fear nothing else and be on your way rejoicing so again thank you Matt thank you thank you Nathan listeners thank you very much and we'll see you next week see you guys bye everybody The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. You can start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for all the latest news and episodes or for merchandise and to contact us directly. You can follow us on Twitter at The Fear of God, on Instagram at Fear of God Podcast, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com for our artwork. To Lee Wright, who helped me read Lackey write our theme music, and to Tyler Smith at MoreThanOneLesson.com for making our show possible. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice, and if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.